to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I am quite fond of the preacher Fleming Rutledge, who has said that Advent always begins in the dark. That description feels a lot more meaningful to me in recent years because, of course, here in the Pacific Northwest, Advent coincides with a season when we are quite familiar with darkness. And that darkness of our immediate physical environment obviously shapes the way that we interact with the world. When the sun rises at 7.38 and sets at 4.21, as it will today, you have to adapt to work within or somehow overcome those limited parameters. And it's, of course, occasionally for some of us quite frustrating to start the day in darkness and to end it in the same kind of darkness. There are even those days when the clouds seem to have conspired together and the sun never actually rises at all. And likewise, the world around us sometimes feels like it's locked in a kind of darkness. You only have to take a glance at the headlines in a newspaper or check your favorite social media feed to be reminded that we live in a fallen world in need of more light. Things are not as they should be. Children go hungry. Families are torn apart by violence. Chronic illness and poverty remain constant challenges. The world lies in darkness. And whatever optimism or hope we might have for the future, it cannot come from looking at the world as it currently is. And if we look inside ourselves, we even find some darkness there. No amount of optimism or self-help books or not even the power of positive thinking can hope to overcome the sin that lurks in our hearts. Even those of us who are faithful, determined followers of Jesus know that we're not perfect people. As Paul himself wrote, we cannot help but do the things we do not want to do. And the things we want to do, we are unable to accomplish. So there's your annual cold water shower (laughs) to begin the season of Advent. We begin in the dark as sinners in need of rescue, hoping for deliverance that is impossible to achieve on our own. And we know that it's impossible because we have not managed it yet. And remembering that, maybe even reveling in it, announcing that we have no hope in ourselves, is the task of the church in the lead up to Christmas. This Sunday, we begin that four-week journey toward the dawning light of Christ's birth. But it's not a quick trip. Not just the last thing we have to check off on our list as we get ready for joyful celebrations. Advent asks us to slow down and pay attention to the state of the world as well as the state of our own soul. So that the arrival of Christ 
as well as the anticipation of his return at his second coming, are both sources of deep and resounding joy. While everywhere all around us, the whole world is getting ready to move on to a very secular Christmas, a hollow and generic red and green shaded celebration of family and gift giving without any reckoning with sin or salvation or the incarnation, the church waits patiently for the savior of the world. This is a great time of year for one of my favorite poets, W.H. Auden, who wrote in his epic, For the Time Being, composed during the darker days of World War II, these lines. Nothing that is possible can save us. We who must die demand a miracle. Auden is not referring to everyday problems like where to park or what to get for Christmas for your favorite relatives. He's talking about the biggest, most challenging things that we face. The questions of our existence, the challenges of the human condition, sin and death, problems that we cannot solve on our own, and that only the miraculous will be able to overcome. This is the time in the church year when we pay special attention to the four last things, death, judgment, hell, and heaven. It's a time of deep introspection as we hope for what is otherwise impossible. Not just the cursory runway to Christmas or a chance for particularly pedantic clergy to rain on the world's prematurely festive consumerist parade. But it's a time to peer into the darkness of the human condition and take a fearless inventory of what we find there. And when we do, we begin to realize just how high the stakes are. And we long for the return of the Lord. Some will say that the church is always an advent because we always live in this in-between moment between the first coming of Christ and the second. We are therefore always a little bit like the watchman standing on the wall, straining our eyes to the horizon, waiting for good news, waiting for the dawn and for the return of the one who is promised. Jesus himself talked about his return in the Gospels, a portion of which we read from in Matthew this morning. Our Lord reminds his followers that the end of the age is going to be a time of chaos. He uses phrases here that live in our collective memory because they are so distinctive, but also words like no other. There will be wars and rumors of wars. From the fig tree, we must learn its lesson. One will be taken and one will be left. And if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. These words, of course, have inspired whole generations of Christians to speculate about the precise timing of his return. And it's natural, of course, that we'd like to know when Jesus is going to come back so that we can be as prepared as possible. We do not want to be caught asleep when we should be awake or miss him because we're not ready. Or, as that clever bit of bumper sticker theology says, Jesus is coming, try to look busy. 
Now, we have all had the experience of being surprised at some point in time when it was less than pleasant. When I was a child growing up in Florida, we would occasionally have to kill poisonous rattlesnakes that we encountered while tramping around the woods. And those snakes, while dead, could still serve an important purpose as a source of amusement because you could hide them under various toys around the yard to frighten unsuspecting friends and neighbors. And usually you would get a lot of use out of one snake until perhaps somebody got a little overzealous and forgot to check to see if the snake had a head uh, and maybe diced it up with a shovel. That kind of surprise, while hilarious, is not always welcome. And Christians have wondered similarly for a long time if they might be able to figure out exactly when Jesus is coming so that we are not caught unawares. The bad news is that so far all of our calculations have turned out to be wrong, but I promise somewhere this morning somebody is working on it and we're going to hear from them soon. And they're probably going to be wrong too. I think instead of spending quite so much time trying to do advanced biblical numerology, we might be better served by taking Christ at his word when he says, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And if the hour is unexpected, that probably means it cannot be calculated. That we cannot discover the time of his arrival doesn't mean that we should abandon our preparations like the watchers on the walls straining our eyes, looking for any sign of the returning victorious king, we wait with anticipation for those who put their trust in Christ and are servants in the kingdom of God. That return is not something to fear. It's going to be a moment of incredible joy because when he returns, all things will be in his hands. It seems counterintuitive, of course, because the descriptions in the Gospels talk about the judgment that will follow the return of Christ. But when the judge is good and righteous, we have nothing to fear at all. The words of Jesus in Matthew have this kind of cosmic weight to them. And the second coming can be difficult to get our minds around because it seems to be sort of on the stage of a worldwide event. The language is so massive and the scale of the words is so gigantic that it can be hard to imagine what it means for us. But we have to understand that Christ wants his followers to get ready for the end times by living as if Christ could appear again at any moment. Not out of fear and not by abandoning our collective responsibilities, not by refusing to invest in our communities or abusing our neighbors or ignoring the call to be good stewards, but by growing into the full maturity of Christ and living as he did. Paul says it best in his letter to the Romans, and also it is echoed in this morning's collect. We have to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That is not a passive process. It doesn't happen by a kind of spiritual osmosis as a result of faithfully occupying a pew 
or making financial contributions or generally affirming the right beliefs about God. Something in each of us has to move towards Christ. We have to take action in order to put the old life of sin and death behind us and step out into the light of life lived with and for Jesus. C.S. Lewis had a very memorable turn of phrase about the coming of Christ that I'm going to have to update for us this morning only because he could only imagine that women would have gone to department stores to try on clothes. So if you, bless your heart, venture into a department store this time of year, first of all, you're a much braver, braver person than I am. But secondly, you'll notice if you head to the fitting rooms that the light there is of a different quality than anywhere else on the whole planet. It almost feels a little unnatural. And when you try on clothing in that light and in those mirrors, it inevitably looks really good on you. And then once you get it home, often it just does not quite look the same. So if you find an outfit that works in a dressing room but doesn't work anywhere else, what good is it? So Lewis observed that in the same way we have to dress our souls, not for the world as we see it now in the light of worldly concerns and priorities, but to prepare ourselves to be beautiful in the light of Christ. Just as we make diligent plans and preparations for Christmas, we have to prepare to greet the return of the Lord. So that this means that we're not in just a season of hanging lights and putting up the tree and throwing great parties, but also a time when we evaluate the state of our readiness to welcome Jesus. It's not a fantastical theological rhetoric that we hear this morning. It's the sober truth. If we believe that Christ was born into the world and will return again in the future, how ready are we? Have we examined ourselves and recognized our need for his help to do the impossible for us? The significance of the birth of Jesus, the significance of Christmas itself will always elude us if we're unable to recognize the gravity of human need. It's tempting to skip ahead to the tree and the presence and all the joy, but it's not helpful. Advent asks us to acknowledge the pervasive presence of the powers of sin and death. And when we do that, we recognize that Christmas is not just a celebration of the triumph of the human spirit or the joy of being united as one human family. It's an invasion of the irresistible grace of God, which is never predictable, never deserved, and always unexpected. As Paul notes further down in Romans, salvation is nearer at hand than we realize. The night is already far gone. The day is almost here. And if no one can know the day or the hour, we should be getting ready right now. There is, of course, a kind of double-mindedness to the Christian life. And it's never more obvious than in this season, when the whole world is celebrating a month-long festival of consumption while we get together and talk about being patient and waiting. But to be in the world and not of the world, this is the posture that all of us 
even and maybe especially children have to try to master. So I want to encourage you to try to keep this Advent well. Come out to Taproot this evening with friends and family. Light candles in your home and mark the days. Gather together and make it a merry season of preparation. But let us not fast forward and turn it into something other than what it is. This season invites us into a quiet space where God can speak. It begins in moments of darkness, introspection, and anticipation. But this time is a gift when we are allowed to wait with patience for God to act, when we're invited to step back from the mania of a secular celebration of the holidays, to begin in the dark and watch for the coming of the king and the dawning of the light. And then when that light finally breaks through, to proclaim it with such everlasting joy that the whole world will come running to see what it's all about. Happy Advent. Amen.